Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Physical distancing may well be a thing that we practice for many, many more months to come. We'll explain that to you in just a couple of minutes. The CERB application process started this week, and there are a lot of concerns about the website and how to apply. Andrew Goldberg from Lior Simfuro joins us to give us all the details. And what is the plan to deal with the potential surge in COVID-19 cases? President of St. Joseph's Hospital, Melissa Farrell, joins us to talk about that. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. What about the spread of the virus itself? Uh, a little daunting to, to know that, uh, you know, I, I think it's been a few weeks now, and a lot of us is kind of thinking, well, we've we got to be near the end. Apparently the experts say, no, we're not. And on top of that, we also need to consider how is this going to roll out eventually? I mean, uh, th- th- this virus may not go away, but at some point we're all expecting to return to some sense of normalcy, or will we? Uh, when things like physical distancing will be a thing of the past, and it might not be. I'm going to bring uh, Dr. Todd Coleman into the conversation, Ph.D. assistant professor in the Department of Health Sciences at Wilfrid Laurier University. Uh, Dr. Coleman, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Thanks. Good morning. Good morning to you, too. I hope you're well. Yeah, doing pretty good. A little too good. crazy, good. but um, all right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. I think it's starting to, a little cabin fever starting to affect all of us. An interesting study that was done at, uh, by a, a group of doctors uh, at Harvard, uh, in the Harvard Gazette is where this thing was published, actually, uh, that basically said that uh, this whole concept of physical distancing may well start to become the new norm for us. Not it may be as intense as we're doing it right now, but to, but to wean us back uh, in, into regularity. Have you seen the article, and, and what are your thoughts on that? I haven't seen that particular article, but yes, I've heard a lot about uh, uh, the changes that are going to probably end up happening as a result of what's going on right now. I, I guess the rationale for that, and we had this discussion with uh, Dr. Uh, Elizabeth Richardson, who is our medical officer of health here in Hamilton. She was on the program yesterday. Uh, and and she, for those of us that are in social life, I, like I'm doing the show from my, my house today, as have, we have been for the last couple of weeks. Uh, and I hope I never get this virus. But the problem is, is at some point we do have to develop some sort of an immunity to things like this, don't we? Uh, yeah, that's the big question. Uh, pre- to develop an immunity, typically for something, and with this disease in particular, it's not uh, known yet what the threshold needs to be. So, for example, uh, with vaccines, and you want to develop typically like uh, three quarters or more of the population needs to be vaccinated, meaning they need to be immune. Uh, and with this, uh, we still don't know exactly what's going to happen. So is it going to peter out? Is it going to go away? Um, is it uh, with us for the long haul? Is it the new seasonal uh, uh, illness that we have? Um, and if we do develop an immunity to it, uh, that just means that a lot of people need to get infected. We need the the vaccines to be developed before um, before we we figure out uh, whether or not it's been circulating in the population. The vaccine element is is uh, I think something we should talk about uh, because I, I I get this expectation from some of the responses I'm getting from a lot of our listeners over the last couple of days that they're figuring boy when that vaccine comes out you know everybody's going to get inoculated and this thing is going to go away it's not quite that simple is it no not so not that simple at all uh, especially with vaccines because they need to go through uh, not just simple uh, one-off experiments uh, in small groups of people. They have to go through uh, a number of phases before they're they're approved for 
uh, widespread circulation. So we're looking at months, if not a year, before. And and even with that, of course, we have to wonder about the uh, you know the, uh, the uh, potency, I guess, of a vaccine like this. It's going to take an awfully long time. Maybe if you could, though, I just want to backtrack a little bit. You were talking about the the herd immunity uh, right. concept here. That uh, that uh, if a lot of us have developed some immunity to this, the chances of of having this develop into a an epidemic or a pandemic seems to be lessened considerably. How does that work? Yeah, herd immunity is an interesting concept. So it, it's really the idea of uh, you get a really large proportion, so percentage of people who become immune to uh, a certain uh, virus or bacterial infection, uh, and that prevents us from spreading it to other people. Uh, so it, it's sort of, it, it's really, uh, with this social distancing, it's sort of a similar kind of picture. You're cutting off the chain of transmission by giving the virus less root to be able to infect more people. So with that in mind, how would that work then? According to the paper I read in the Gazette, Giz- I just saw the overview of the thing in the, the Harvard Gazette, but the, the essence of it seems to be uh, what they're suggesting we may do, and, and this, of course, as you say, we don't really know, we don't have a path to this yet because we're learning more about this virus, I guess, on a daily basis, but what they call intermittent uh, uh, physical distancing. In other words, every now and then we just have to maybe do what we're doing now, then come out again a little bit. I guess more people would be exposed to something like that and then go back in again to try to develop that immunity. It sounds like a, a quite a lengthy process. Yeah, it would be a very lengthy process. And the problem with that, too, is that we're not entirely sure um, the extent of infection in the population. You've probably discussed this and heard about the asymptomatic possibilities Mm-hmm. people without symptoms uh and that just means that if we if we don't know who has it um it can be spread out into uh what we're seeing again in long-term care homes uh and end up really having serious consequences so it's not something that we want to gamble with uh in terms of people's lives the other element to this, too, and, and again, we're trying to, I guess, develop some characteristics as to how this thing is actually going to uh, affect uh, different individuals. And now I've talked to some people that, that have been tested positive for this and, and have gone through the process, and I guess still are. It, it, it's not something you get over in two or three days. Right. But most cases, what I'm hearing, doctor, is they get pretty sick, they get start to feeling better for two or three days, and then, bang, they get hit with another whack of this thing. It comes back just as heavily as it did the first time around. So it's it's very unpredictable at this stage. Exactly. We don't know the, the actual manifestations and the number of people who are infected. So, yeah, we've heard a lot of stories about people uh, having those two waves of, of sickness, so feeling better for one day, two days, and then all of a sudden being hit with another set of really severe symptoms. Uh, we've heard other stories of people who exhibit very little symptoms. Uh, they lose their, there's some suggestions about losing your uh, sense of uh, taste and smell. Uh, this is a very unpredictable virus at this point. Uh, and we're going to learn a lot more, thankfully, because it's affecting the world. Um, about what exactly is happening with this. 
I, that's a little puzzling to, to we in the lay field here, right? without the medical experience and expertise. We, the virus is a virus. How, how does it affect different people differently in, in situations like that? Uh, aside from the asymptomatic people, but, you know, oh, yeah, you've been tested positive. Uh, some of them have described this as nothing more than a bad cold. Others, well, as we know, are on respirators in intensive care now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's another another good question. And I'm seeing a lot of new studies coming out uh, that are suggesting that it could be something that's uh, in our genetics. Uh, and then also on top of that, uh, uh, different characteristics of our immune system. So the, the clear reason why older individuals seem to be affected more is because their immune systems aren't as strong as younger individuals. Uh, that's one clear explanation. Uh, but we're still seeing some manifestations of this in younger people that seem a little puzzling. And every once in a while, uh, I, I come across articles that talk about uh, our immune systems in some of these cases could potentially be mounting too much of an attack against, and that's what ends up making us really sick. How would that work? Because I'm, I'm seeing some of the same articles, I guess you are, doctor, that say, yeah, oh, you should build up your immune system if you haven't been t- tested for this yet to try to fight this thing off. And I'm, then I'm seeing other articles on the other side of that says, no, it's probably not a bad idea to at least be exposed to this because that's the only way you're going to build up that immunity. Yeah, if you, if you, the, the other article about opening up, the other articles about opening up the, 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 uh, this for herd immunity um, could potentially have a lot of horrible consequences uh, in, in unintentionally infecting people who are very uh, uh, have very uh, suppressed immune systems and resulting in in even larger numbers of deaths than we're already seeing. Well, and this is one of the things that uh, that we've been warned about, of course. As you say, we, we, I guess the, the the norm we're talking about here are people that are quote unquote healthy, but when, you know, people with pre-existing conditions, people with autoimmune diseases. Uh, if if we were to open this up and simply expose everything to this, you, I, it, this would be like setting a wildfire, wouldn't it? Yes, exactly. So we have yeah, there, and the the sh- there's no shortage of people who have co- these co-occurring. Uh, conditions, these autoimmune diseases, uh, other chronic diseases that could potentially be really, uh, uh, really affected by opening this up to infecting a large proportion of the population. You mentioned something a, a couple of minutes ago that I, I wanted to give a little more detail about this, about this well, we don't know, I guess, at this stage, whether or not this is going to become uh, a, a virus that is going to be with us all the time, that's always going to be out there, or whether or not it's going to be seasonal. Uh, does the virus make that determination, or do we? It's a little of both at this point. Okay. Uh, uh, the, the, me- the measures that we're trying to do now and the public health system is trying to do is to really squash this completely. Um, but Is that possible? That's the thing. Uh, we still don't know. My guess is that it will be very difficult to do uh, if we don't know the extent of people in the population that have it. So that's where we're we're wondering, uh, we're suggesting uh, moving into a new phase of testing where we test uh, some people who may not even be showing any symptoms. Maybe they just have a, a mild fever uh, because we need to really understand who in the population has it, not just the people who have it so heavily that they end up going to the doctor and getting tested.
with that in mind, then, uh, what kind of test are we looking at? I mean, I know there's the swab test. That, you know, with the, the, we've seen that one. I'm also told now that there's a blood test that some people are using to determine whether or not you've been exposed to the virus. Yeah, there's some blood tests that are being used uh, that look at antibodies being created against this. There's the swab test. Uh, in other countries, we've seen uh, where they've actually had a very good hold on, on the virus, uh, where they're testing everybody in, in public settings uh, where they haven't closed the schools, for example, for fevers, because that's one of the co- most common symptoms. Uh, if they have a fever, then they move on to other tests. Uh, blood tests, swab tests. If they end up showing, uh, if they end up showing uh, any cough or or uh, lung congestion, uh, they could end up going for CT scans. Those are all possibilities uh, uh, for testing on a much broader scale than we are right now. Just an indicator as to how we're learning about this almost on a daily basis. I was reading one article from, uh, it was one of the U.S. magazines uh, online yesterday, uh, and we've talked about the typical uh, symptoms, of, as you've just mentioned, about you know pro- trouble breathing, cough, uh, fever, things of this nature. Uh, now we're t- told that fatigue, runny nose, and diarrhea can also be signs of this virus. So that's, it's, it's pretty hard to nail down exactly what we're dealing with here. Yeah, definitely. And we've seen uh, from some of the studies that were initially done in China, those uh, additional symptoms like uh, diarrhea and gastrointestinal kind of symptoms are are seen fewer. Uh, The the most common characteristic is the fever. Uh, And we have heard of some folks who've been able to clear the virus, uh, uh, indicating that they had no lung congestion whatsoever. They just felt for one or two days extremely tired and ex- slept for for most of the day or a couple days and then we're fine uh it, it's a very unique uh, uh manifestation of disease that really makes it hard to uh, uh pinpoint who exactly might have had it we also hear talk doctor about uh, if in fact we do flatten the curve which is our ultimate goal here uh that we can anticipate a second wave is that inevitable yeah, we're comparing this to other pandemics like the one seen 100 years ago, the Spanish flu pandemic, where it was a similar kind of uh, global. It affected uh, in the winter and spring uh, on a global scale, uh, went away for much of the summer months and then came back uh, with somewhat of a vengeance in the fall. Uh, it, again, it's, it's, our guesses are, are, are more prominent than actual facts at this point about whether or not that's going to be the case. But if we can control it uh, to the extent that uh, we end up suppressing the majority of infections and reducing, still reducing travel, social distancing, all of that stuff, then a second wave might be preventable. Well, it's a rather frightening prospect, obviously, to think we may get back to some sense of normalcy and start going to ball games or whatever else again through the summer months and then having to do this again in the fall. But I guess that's really kind of up to us as to what we do now and how we handle this at this moment. That's exactly right. It's, it's really up to us to keep, keep going. Uh, it's really tough for a lot of people, uh, but we, in terms of the long run, it, it's only for the benefit of not just Canadians, but the entire world at this point. A lot of information, a lot of misinformation out there about what we're dealing with here. That's why it's always a, a, a real pleasure to get you on here, Doctor, to talk about this and separate some of the fact from the fiction. Thanks, as always, for this, and uh, stay healthy. We'll talk again soon, I'm sure.
Yeah, thanks very much. Have a great day. Take care. You too. Dr. Todd Coleman from uh, Wolf of Loria University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I'm going to try to answer some questions that I know a lot of you have now. We've been listening to the daily updates from the Prime Minister, of course, uh, since this whole process started a few weeks ago now. And over the last few days, uh, the PM has been talking about the, uh, well, the CERB program, the application process uh, for uh, compensation for those that are uh, being impacted by what's happening here with the closures, layoffs, and things of this nature. But uh, an awful lot of questions about this, and it's uh, it's kind of like reading Latin to some people because it's uh, it's kind of out there. And you say, well, do I, why, who, you know, what am I do, and all this sorts of stuff. So we wanted to bring our good friend Andrew Goldberg back. Uh, Andrew, of course, is an associate with Lior Sanfuro lawyers, uh, employment lawyers. And, of course, you can hear that at the Legal Show, which is uh, every weekend here on 900 CHML. Andrew, how are you doing today? hope things are going well for you. Yes, things are well, Bill. Holding up, how are you? Uh, hanging in, hanging in. We're just, uh, you know, doing the physical distancing thing and everything, but and watching with great interest uh, to some of the, the details that the Prime Minister is rolling out. Uh, before we get too deeply into this, though, and I, I want to get your opinion on, on the program as it is, I, I want to right off the bat tell folks that uh, that uh, you guys, you're always on top of this sort of stuff at Lior Sanfuro Lawyers. Uh, you've actually got a web page going here to, that's going to answer some of the questions that people have, right? Yeah, that's correct. So we've launched a tool, like, as you mentioned at the outset, you know, people are confused as to whether they qualify for the CERB benefit. So um, we've actually launched a tool that people can access and fill out a, you know, a few simple questions and it'll prompt you with a response as to whether you qualify or not. So we're hoping that helps people out a bit and um, that can be accessed by visiting our website. So if anyone does have concerns and uh, is confused, uh, I'm sure a large percentage of the population is you know feel free to visit the site and, and check it out excellent stuff and by the way we'll give that address uh, just as we finish our conversation here this morning uh, you've had a chance to analyze this over the last couple of days though what's your read on, on what the government's offering here Andrew well <clears throat> you know as we discuss um, all the time this sort of benefit is is rapidly developing it's rapidly changing as of now the big thing is that the CERB benefit is only going to be provided to people who have lost their income entirely. Um, so there's a few qualifiers. I won't get into them all now, but essentially the, the crux of it is that you have to have no income in order to qualify for the CERB benefit. So, the so you've, either been, you've either been let go or you've been laid off. So you have to be let go, laid off. If you have... Um, if you, you know, you're forced to quarantine because of the virus, if you're caring for someone who's ill, pretty much has, if COVID has caused, caused you to have to be at home and not earn an income, uh, then you'd qualify for the CERB benefit. But the key is, one, is that you'd have to have earned at least $5,000 over the last 12 months. You're expected to have no income for at least 14 days in a row uh, within a staggered four-week periods. And again, you'd have to have no income. Uh, at the time that you apply for the CERB benefit. Uh, the the $5,000 thing is interesting. I mean, obviously they've got to set some parameters here. I get that. But, I mean, is is there going to be some flexibility here? Because there are some people that are in seasonal labor, that are different kinds of jobs. We know some people that have two or three different part-time jobs. Uh, but uh, to drive, they may not meet that threshold, but, you know, they, they're still needing cash. Right. That's a great point. And Prime Minister, another example of that is even, you know, imagine a student who had just recently graduated and you know, was a full-time mm-hmm. student, wasn't working, and is now looking to enter the workforce, and they didn't earn $5,000 last year. You know, should this person be left out in the dust? Um, the positive news is Prime Minister Trudeau did say that 
they were looking to, you know, amend the the CERB benefit to provide help for more people. I think the 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 most vulnerable group, quite frankly, is actually people who have experienced a significant decline in earnings, but their earnings aren't down to zero. So, you know, if, if you're a gig worker, if you you know, drive Uber, Uber Eats, do deliveries or, or any kind of other job where, you know, you now earn 20% of what you used to make, um, 15% of what you used to make. Right now, the SERB benefit is not going to be provided to you. But Prime Minister Trudeau did mention that they're looking to expand the benefit to cover people working reduced hours or earning less, but not zero. So that's, that's I guess in, in, in defense of the government, and because I know I've heard those criticisms uh, over the last couple of days about a number of the programs that uh, both uh, the federal and, for that matter, the provincial governments, I guess, are rolling out these days. Uh, this is uncharted waters for all of us, isn't it? I mean, it's not as if they say, well, you know, the last time we had a pandemic, this is what we did. We don't know. So it just seems as if the government comes out as they did with, uh, with this program, with the CERB program. And figures, okay, we've just cast a net. That should conclude just about everybody who's going to be hard done by. And then I, somebody sticks out, what about us? What about us? And they say, okay, we have to alter this. So this is very much a, a work in progress, isn't it? Yeah, that's an entirely fair point. I mean, the rate at which the government is pumping out legislation and trying to expedite the process, setting up you know, web portals for people to apply, all, all things considered, these are things that have happened very, very quickly. So, you know, yes, I, this shouldn't be a, a bashing of the government it, just because some people were left out. I think the, the government and Prime Minister Trudeau specifically have you sh- uh, shown that they're more than willing to keep making adjustments as different kinks, you know, are found. And um, so things keep keep looking optimistic and they're willing to make the changes. It's just, you know, people have to be patient and so far, everything's progressing. I know people have already been applying for the CERB benefit this week. Um, I know people, I've, I've had an opportunity to speak with people who had applied for EI and had qualified for EI after March 15th, and they've actually already been approved for the CERB benefit and received their money. So things are happening quite quickly, uh, to your point, for sure. That's unusual for government to move that rapidly, isn't it? Well, you know, I, I'd say I'd say so, but 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 as you mentioned, I mean, in in light of what's happening, I, I think the government is doing a terrific job, being prompt and um, listening. I think that the key the key is that the government is really listening to the struggles and gaps um, in the legislation, and uh, and they're doing a good job of trying to make those adjustments on the fly. So. So far, I think people should be very optimistic, and you know we're just going to keep going and, and seeing what happens. You talked about the parameters here, Andrew. Let's get back to that for just a second. Uh, for the people uh, that, uh, as you say, have been laid off or lost their jobs uh, altogether, uh, if you've been previously laid off, you are now eligible for this, but I guess you would be eligible for EI, wouldn't you? Well, so only individuals who you know have the requisite number of insurable hours will qualify for EI. So... If you're an employee and every two weeks on your paycheck uh, an amount is coming off and being remitted for EI and you've, you have enough uh, hours to then qualify, then you would get EI. But a lot of people who are contractors or you know in the gig economy that aren't paid a paycheck with EI deductions, those people would not qualify for EI. You're right, though, a fair degree of people do, and that's something that a lot of people sh- um, have already had the opportunity to to uh, apply to prior to the um, uh, rolling out of the CERB benefit. So there is the EI there. Also, my understanding is that if you 
do apply for EI after March 15th, um, and you qualify for EI after March 15th, you will actually get the SER benefit first, and then you will get the EI um, entitlement on the back end. So the government is doing a very good job of letting people, uh, you know, have access to both if they need it in certain circumstances. But in that way, then, and, and I know you've been on the website and talked to some folks that have made application of this already, uh, the applicant doesn't have to make that determination whether or not they qualify for for both or one. They'll make that application for they'll make that determination for you, won't they? That is my understanding. I mean, I haven't applied uh, myself, but that is my understanding. I spoke to someone uh, very recently, and she notified me that she had applied for EI in the normal course, and mm-hmm. internally, um, I. The uh, the process, uh, however, the process was adjudicated uh, internally. The um, it was determined that she'd get the SERB benefit, so she didn't apply for the SERB benefit through the new SERB portal on my CRA. She actually uh, got applied for EI in the normal course, and then it was transferred to the SERB benefit, um, kind of through the internal mechanisms at play. So you're right; it, it's they're trying to make it as easy as possible. And quite frankly, um, these systems are not easy to launch and coordinate, and it's very impressive. Uh, that you know, such an undertaking has been going so smoothly so far. To that point, because uh, everybody was anticipating, and, and many of them predicting, I guess, that, well, yeah, that sounds like a good plan, but you know darn well so many people are going to apply that the, the system's going to crash and, and nobody's going to get anything. hasn't happened so far. I'm, I'm, I'm hearing nothing but good things so far. You're right. It hasn't happened so far. And, and another thing the government is doing is they're recommending that people who are applying for the SIR benefit do so kind of on a staggered basis based on mm-hmm. your birthdays. So they're saying people born, I think it's June through March, uh, were able to apply on Monday, April through June on Tuesday, or sorry, January through March on Monday, April through June on Tuesday, uh, July through September today, and then the last three months uh, tomorrow, and then for Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, anyone can qu- uh, apply. So I think what they're trying to do is prevent uh, any kind of system shuttage uh by kind of staggering the applications which is a great idea well it's managing it isn't it instead of having a big stampede all on day one like that which i guess that's what a lot of people were anticipating but it just seems as if uh, so far so good uh now you've had some feedback from some of the people that have been on the system and applied for it is is it complex is it one of these things where uh you know a lot of questions that can get very frustrating i mean sometimes anytime you're filling out any form for government uh, you know, they, they seem to want just about every piece of information from you, and then you have to go back to page one to reference that one, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Is this, is this easy to follow? It is, it's extremely easy to follow. I mean, something to keep in mind is the government is really trying to make it as easy as possible. Um, so my understanding is all you need is a social insurance number, contact information, and a declaration that you are eligible uh, for receiving the CERB benefit, the CERB benefit. So the government is not asking for a boatload of documents. They're not asking you, oh, send us a bunch of invoices um, from the last three months that substantiates the fact that you had earned an income and, you know, show us your record of employment. If, if you know, you're let go or get us a note from your employer that says you're let go, you simply need to attest to the fact that you are eligible and the government's going to use an honor system. So for individuals who apply and um, receive the benefit but shouldn't have qualified down the line, they're going to have to pay that back. So it's very important to know um, that you are eligible before you apply. Obviously, the um, 
the uh, CERB tool that our firm has launched is, is to help people in that regard. Um, but, but you're right, you don't need to provide a whole boatload of documentation. You're just going to get it. The government just wants money in people's hands. And for the people who, you know, abuse the system or maybe who are just simply confused, uh, they're going to have to pay that back down the line. So it's, it's not hard to apply. It's not hard to get set up. I understand that payments will be rolled out very quickly, but you do run the risk that if you don't actually qualify, if you're not eligible and you receive the payment, you will have to pay that back at some point. And as you mentioned to us the other day when you were on the program, uh, they're not going to do that uh, that uh, uh, evaluation, I guess, up front. I mean, you know, the money's going to be out there. I mean, I've heard stories of people that applied on Monday are going to get their stuff by the end of this week. But uh, Canada Revenue is watching this, too. I mean, this is government money, and they track who they send it to. Uh, so somewhere down the line, they're going to say, whoa, whoa, wait a second here. You didn't really deserve that money, so you have to get it back. So the, the honor system is an honor system to a point, but there is going to be a check and balance on this eventually. Of course, yeah. I mean, down the line, absolutely. When I say honor system, I mean just to receive the upfront payment. We're relying on the honor system, but you're right. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, there will be checks and balances. Um, this is government money. Ultimately, government money is taxpayer money, and, you know, this money has to come from somewhere. So they are going to be doing a good job of, I'm sure, as they always are, making sure that people um, aren't taking advantage of the system and they will do. Yeah, I think at some point you'll see in the in months to come, there will be a follow up once things have settled down. And like, because right now, a lot of the individuals responsible for adjudicating and processing these requests, they don't have time to vet uh, every individual. But down the line, once these payments are made and people apply and they qualify and they are, are provided with payments rather these you know they will be kind of audited so to speak down the line i wouldn't be surprised if many individuals get follow-up phone calls or emails requesting further documentation down the line to support their application for the serb benefit we, we should mention by the way that uh, this is not just an open-ended process there is a, a limitation on this uh, i think it's what 16 weeks that, that, that you'll get this, this money it, yes it's for it's um from March 15th to October 3rd, it's the 16-week period. It's about four months, uh, but it's broken up into four-week chunks. So you qualify for essentially $500 a week, $2,000 every four weeks uh, in four-week increments. So you have to attest to the fact that um, every four weeks, you, you know, you're out of work for at least 14 days or you expect to be out of work for at least 14 days so so you're correct it, it only it'll stop as my understanding is october 3rd and then i i imagine um, based on how things progress maybe they extend the government extends that maybe they don't hopefully they don't have to um but as it currently stands it, uh it's, it, you're right it is a four month 16 week period okay now here's a, a scenario that actually i guess we could relate it to the story we just had earlier today uh, where a number of Air Canada employees were laid off a couple of weeks ago, and now we're told that a number of them, a few hundred of them, I guess about 1,500 now, are, are going to be hired back. So if in a situ And that may happen with other industries as well. So if you've applied for this and start receiving the money, uh, and all of a sudden you get your job back or, or you find employment someplace else, uh, what do you do? You don't continue to collect the money, I would think. Well, I think that's an excellent question, to be honest with you. Um I think that's part of the reason that they broke it up into these kind of four week segments because, okay. you know, if, if you get it for 16 weeks, I mean, that's $8,000, right? It's for, for a yeah. four or four week periods times $2,000. So they're not giving out that $8,000 all at once. They're giving it to people who um, apply for the, 
specific four-week period. So the the ad, the what you have to attest to in applying is that you're you know you're out of work for 14 days in a row, or you expect to be out of work for 14 days in a row. So it appears that based on the language, if at the time you applied, you did have a reasonable expectation that you would be out of work for at least 14 days, then you should be receiving the benefit. And I'm not sure how the government's going to reconcile that if halfway through the period you, you do get recalled to work, for example. Um, you know, maybe the government does at some point claw back half that $2,000. I'm not positive at this stage. But all that being said, if you're returning to work and you have your job and you have your income again, I think uh, paying back a thousand bucks is the least of your worries. Yeah, exactly. And and like I say, I, I know that's a hypothetical, but I mean, it may start happening as it did with the Air Canada employees. So I'm sure the government has uh, has uh, at least considered that eventuality. As a matter of fact, the, the, the good news story about the Air Canada thing, hey, yeah, the people are getting their jobs back. But that's another arm of the uh, the government assistance program right now, because Air Canada was quite upfront and simply said, well, it's, it's, it's the government uh, you know salary assistance program that's actually allowing that, but they're going to top up those salaries. So uh, they're certainly throwing the programs out there. And uh, for people to take advantage of it, uh, they have to go to the website but uh, I, I want to talk about your page for just a second here because uh, it's the easiest way to get on it we can go to the website of course your own website for the Lior Sanfuro LLP uh, or covidrights.ca that's capital C COVID rights capital R dot ca uh, is a quicker way I guess to get to the link and we want to remind people that this is not the, the, the page you go to, to to make application it's a it's a q and a frequently asked questions and answers uh that uh, the good, good folks at Lear Sam have put together for you to try to give some some clarity to that so covidrights.ca to get that uh lots of information coming up here i know that uh, it's keeping you guys pretty busy uh thanks so much for taking some time for us once again today andrew i know we'll talk about this again in a few days as uh you mentioned about the, the student aspect of this we're told that that may be one of the areas the prime minister is going to address later on this morning so i'm sure we'll have some questions about that well yes every day uh you know every time we talk by the end of the day things have changed so dramatically so um mm-hmm. it's important to keep an eye on things and you know you want to watch the news, obviously, and, and see kind of what benefits are out there. And, and just, you know, our, we always have things on our website. We're going to keep people apprised of the situation. And um, I think things will continue to get better and, and more people will receive the assistance that they need. So it, I, I think there's reason to be optimistic for sure. All right. And check that website out too, Lior Samfuro LLP, to get uh, all the details about this. Stay healthy, Andrew. We'll talk again in a few days. Thanks for this today. Absolutely. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. How are the hospitals dealing with this? We've watched, of course, on the news about how what's going on worldwide now is having an impact on hospital systems around the globe, and it's uh, it's a rather dire circumstance. Uh, Hamilton hospitals are getting ready as well. Uh, as they always do, Hamilton uh, Health Sciences and St. Joe's are coordinating their efforts here. Joining us to talk about this is Melissa Farrell, who is the president of St. Joseph's Hospital. Melissa, thank you so much for taking time out. I'm sure you're very busy these days. No problem. Thank you very much for uh, asking us to come today. Well, listen, before we get into the uh, nuts and bolts of what we're going to do here to prepare for this, uh, a shout-out, first of all, to your staff and everybody associated with the hospital uh, on all the campuses. I mean, there's there's no way that you're going to anticipate something like this happening. I mean, this has just been dumped on, on hospitals right around the world, and it's incredible to see the kind of work and, and dedication that your staff are, are doing on a day-in, day-out basis, which you do all the time anyway, but especially so during this pandemic. Well, thank you so much for that. We really appreciate the support. 
to be honest with you, we have been getting incredible support from the community. Uh, and I just want to actually thank you right back to say thank you so much for all of the support that's being provided to the frontline care workers right now. It is truly appreciated by everyone. So thank you. Now, well, look, we'll get into that later on. I mean, it's just, it's one of the heartwarming stories about what's happening here is that is the dedication of nurses and doctors and, and everybody associated with this in the hospital staff uh, stepping up and, and in some cases, well, let's face it, frankly, putting their lives on the line to try to save other lives. And we've seen the, the, the turmoil and the, and the overcrowding that has gone on in other places. I mean, we, you know, we're looking at pictures over the last week or so uh, of what's going on in New York and, and what it's done to their hospital system. How are uh, our Hamilton Hospital's preparing for this uh, is as bad as as things may be right now I, i'm getting the sense melissa that, that uh, you're anticipating it might get worse yeah so i'm i guess what i would say is there has been some uh some uh, forecasting that's been done at both the provincial level and at the regional level to kind of identify for us what we could anticipate in terms of a best case scenario a middle of the road scenario and a worst case scenario for uh, each of the, you know, all cities, including uh, all regions, and then, of course, at the at the provincial level, too. And so as organizations, we're really looking at this forecasting. And, I mean, you can appreciate there's nothing that you, you know, there's no absolute certainty that the forecasting will be accurate, but we certainly are mm-hmm. using forecasting for our planning purposes to make sure that we're truly prepared. Hamilton, uh, we're kind of fortunate in Hamilton right now that we aren't seeing what some of the other communities are seeing but based on the trajectory and the trending that we're seeing in terms of that, that forecasting, we do anticipate that things are going to get heavier around COVID-19 in the next few weeks. So we are doing everything we possibly can to make sure that we, uh, that we are prepared for that. And then, of course, we need the community to really help us flatten the curve, all of the work that the community has been doing around self-isolating, social distancing, making sure, uh, you know, proper hand uh, hygiene, those things will really help uh, make sure that we see more of the best case scenario or even middle of the road versus worst. So thank you for everything the community is doing to help us, but certainly we're using forecasting to, to, to trend out what we think we're going to need. Melissa, when you saw this was happening and starting to evolve, and, and I, I guess we got a sense of the magnitude of this even a few weeks ago, uh, I, I just want to relate this to, to the reality that we talked about and, and uh, the fact that all the hospitals here in Hamilton, Health Sciences and St. Joe's, are working at over 100% capacity, or have been, and, and for quite some time. Uh, how are you handling the load here? How are you making those accommodations for what is planned to be, I guess, a, 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 an increase in the number of people that are going to be knocking on the door saying we need treatment? It's, it's, it's a really important point to be making, which is we were working, both organizations were operating well over 100% occupancy going into this uh, situation. We're following a five-staged approach, and it's not linear, so I should say all of these steps are actually being taken in, uh, simultaneously, but there's essentially five elements to our planning process. The first one is we're scaling back our surgical surgical procedures to open up those beds for COVID-19 patients. And just to put that in perspective, we have reduced at St. Joe's our surgical volume by 76%. So you can appreciate that surgical volume equates to bed utilization within the hospital. So that's one of the ways uh, that we are freeing up capacity uh, that we can put towards uh, this this crisis. Secondly, would those be be elective surgeries? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, urgent and emergent surgery is still taking place. 
Okay. And we appreciate, you know, I should be really clear. I, I can appreciate that this is disruptive for people who may have been scheduled for elective surgery. Uh, we wouldn't be doing this if we weren't expecting or anticipating uh, uh, and requiring really the need for us to be prepared here. Uh, and we will, of course, be moving back to providing those surgeries over time. Each individual who was on our uh, list for surgery is uh, there is an assessment process. We're following an ethical framework to make the decisions around who we think could have been moved out or not. Uh, but this is a big priority for all organizations, all hospitals right now, is to reduce that surgical volume to create the to free up the first tranche of that capacity that we know we need within the hospital. Um, the second stage, if you wanted me to keep going, I can yeah, share. Yeah, please. The, the, the second stage of our, our strategy, and this is, you know, all of the hospitals across the province and HHS and St. Joe's are consistent around this is we're discharging patients and relocating certain patient populations that can be placed in, into community settings. And I mean, we do this all the time, as you can appreciate. There's, there's always work that's going on between the hospitals and our community partners around who uh, should be in hospital versus um, uh, getting their treatment or their care delivery within the community setting. There's examples of individuals who need to be transitioned out of hospital into long-term care, for example. So we are actively working on that as well and freeing up capacity through those kinds of processes too. The third step really is to create COVID-19 and non-COVID-19 de designated spaces in the hospital. So really making sure that we can delineate between where we'll be placing COVID-19 patients and where we won't. And that's just really important from a healthcare worker perspective, making sure that we can actually, as much as is possible, delineate who is working with COVID-19 and who is not, just an important part, an important step. The fourth is we're converting unconventional spaces for inpatient care inside the hospital. Now, unconventional, you know, I don't know how familiar people would be with that term, but a conventional space, you know, it has a door, it has walls, it has a bathroom, um, it, you know, it'll have suction, it has the right equipment uh, within that space. Unconventional may mean two people to the same room. It may mean a space where there's a curtain versus a, uh, versus your typical doors and, and, uh, and walls, uh, maybe a space that doesn't have a va uh, bathroom, so you have to use congregate bathing uh, settings. Uh, those are the unconventional spaces that we're assessing, and both organizations have been doing that too. And then we're also planning on opening beds out in the community that would be considered unconventional. And you're, you're, you may or may not be aware, but we're looking specifically at partnerships with hotels, with convention centers, et cetera. Now, none of that has been... Uh, confirmed in terms of the, the agreements at this point in time, but we're in the process of working with our partners in the community to find alternate space if we have to flex up outside of the hospital walls. So and I know you've had those context, discussions. Yep. Yeah, I was no, say, just to put that in context for St. Joe's, for us, we have already freed up about 200 uh, conventional beds within our platform, so within the hospital so far, and we think we have close to 230, and, you know, we may be able to find the space. A lot of this actually has to uh, come back to the healthcare workers that could provide the support for the spaces. We think we probably have about 230 that would, that would be those unconditional, uh, uh, sorry, um, uh, unconventional spaces that would be in the hospital too. And HHS has similar kinds of numbers. Um, uh, but we really are looking to find every possible space we can use and get them prepared for use if and when we need them. 
I'm glad you brought up that last point because I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, it's one thing to talk about the number of beds that you can make available, and that's certainly important. Uh, but equally as important as staffing. Uh, I mean, if there's going to be a huge influx in this, what's that going to do to your staffing levels? It's it, That's exactly right. So, And obviously this is very important to the staff that are in the hospital too at this point in time. I can tell you that currently we're, we're well staffed. However, we have developed models of care should we face shortages in any of our critical care areas, um, as has been the case in other countries that have faced these kinds of challenges. So those uh, who work in many areas of the hospital that are highly skilled and not easily replaced, we're looking at how we can um, provide additional support uh, for some of those particular uh, critical areas too. We have created, both of the hospitals have created redeployment op- uh, offices where we are assessing each individual staff member, what is the skill set that they have, where do we think they could be redeployed within the organization if required. And I would say, just given the opportunity that you've given us here, we are uh, we have started to issue a call for healthcare workers who have recently retired or those oh, for, uh, okay. for various reasons are not currently part of the workforce. We're calling for backup support. And there is a provincial approach that's taking place, but both of the hospitals, both HHS and St. Joe's, um, will be launching a call out to the community too. So if you are a retired a healthcare worker or if you, just for other various reasons, are a healthcare worker who uh, who is not currently uh, working, we are going to be doing a call out and looking for those reserves. And to, in addition to that, we're actually scaling up some of our non-clinical care uh, providers just to provide some additional support if and when we may when we may need it. So healthcare, uh, the healthcare workforce, the staffing needs are absolutely essential to this. It's fine to find the space, but it's actually the people to provide the care uh, that's really essential here, and lots and lots of work is going on with that. Yeah, we've, of course, heard the Premier talking about accelerating the graduation process for uh, for nursing mm-hmm. as, as well, exactly. uh, which uh, is yeah. another program I guess you could tap into. Uh, I want to talk about managing numbers here, if, if we could. And, and like I say, the, you know, the deaths that we have here are tragic, and uh, we're trying to control this. We've all used the phrase flattening the curve, and that's that's obviously our long-term goal here. Uh, when I had Dr. Richardson on the program yesterday, uh, Melissa, she talked about the rate at which the uh, the virus is spreading, and the, the, we're talking about the confirmed cases here. And she says it doubles about every five days, which she says is, is not great, but it's a lot better than a lot of other communities. She says mm-hmm. if it, it's starting to double every day and a half or two days, as it has in some other jurisdictions like New York, uh, we're in big trouble. Is is the rate that you're seeing now, and this this could change as of tomorrow, but it, as you see it right now, is it manageable? At this point in time, absolutely. Um, and I would agree with what uh, Dr. Richardson is saying in the context of our current situation right now, we are prepared and and, and we can manage it. Um, but what we want to make sure is that we are overly prepared. I mean, I'm sure you've probably of heard course. this a, a million times, but you know, we're preparing for the worst and we're really hoping for the best here. And, uh, and that is the reason why we're putting so much effort into uh, freeing up the capacity that we can uh, within the hospital and also finding that space outside the hospital in case we need it. If, God forbid, that happens, and, and like I say, there are numbers out there that suggest that it is a possibility at this stage, and, and you are looking at an off-site uh, location, which obviously is going to be coordinated with you in Hamilton Health Sciences. Uh, what would the process and the protocol be in a situation like that, Melissa? Do you move the uh, the people that are in hospital currently to that new facility uh, and keep the people that uh, that are being treated with COVID in isolation in, in one building? How, how, how would that work? I think that's 
you know, I think the best intention would be absolutely true. The positive to be uh, cared for within the hospital setting and talking about potentially your alternate level of care uh, uh, patients who could be uh, provided um, an alternate setting, which could be uh, one of these uh, uh, one of these spaces within the community. I think that's mm-hmm. part of the the planning work that is currently underway is to determine what we think the best possible uh, patient uh, uh, patient community would be for us to be transitioning into those particular areas. Yep. How's your ER staff holding up? I mean, because quite aside from dealing with COVID, as, as you and Hamilton Health Sciences are doing, uh, life goes on. I mean, there are other situations. Uh, people that show up in the ER and, you know, for a variety of different reasons right now, plus the people that may be expressing some symptoms of, of what we're doing here. Uh, this, this has got to be very, very stressful, I would imagine, for your staff. I would say that's, that's definitely true, but we have amazing staff who are doing amazing work each and every day. I think what I would say, and we're so proud of them, honestly, and people have really stepped up to the plate here and are providing uh, uh, really excellent, truly excellent care in these circumstances and are really preparing themselves and, and, and getting ready for what they know the influx is going to look like. Um, these are uncertain times, though, as you can appreciate, and this is this can be really stressful for folks. And I think this is not going to come as a surprise, but the issue it's not just the ED staff, it would be the physicians and, and the rest of the staff within the organization. The thing that is a real concern to everybody is the access to personal protective equipment. And you're hearing yeah. that this is a worldwide challenge at this moment, is making sure that we are protecting our, our patients, our staff, and our physicians. It's, a, it's an absolute priority within the organization to just reassure people. I mean, I'm, I do want to say on behalf of uh, of HHS and St. Joe's, uh, but certainly on, on St. Joe's because I know this with certainty, like we have adequate personal protective equipment right now. What we are trying to do is ensure that we are conserving it as much as we possibly can uh, for the potential surge that, that may be coming. This is obviously a major concern for us, and we're spending a lot of time uh, looking for and sourcing additional PPE um, that's just absolutely critical and essential to us right now. Well, which is a, a worldwide battle going on, as we've seen. I mean, mm-hmm. with the, the story, of course, with 3M that from uh, just a couple of days ago, which seems to have been resolved. We, we understand mm-hmm. just how dire the circumstance is, uh, because the stuff that you want here in Hamilton, uh, and Governor Cuomo wants in New York, and somebody else needs it in, in Bern, Switzerland, I mean, on and on it goes, which is why one of the calls that the Prime Minister's made on a consistent basis, and we've talked about this, is uh, for private industries to step up. There are some industries that have basically shut down now that may have some of this equipment sitting in lockers someplace uh, that they could be donating or loaning to hospital situations like this and, and that's the call i guess we have to get out to, to just about everybody now yeah, uh, we're just about out of really time great. oh <laughs> go ahead <laughs> no i'm just going to say we i want to stay in touch melissa as this rolls out here uh, and, and it's gratifying to know that uh, that you and, and rob mckisick over at hamilton health sciences and, and all your great staffs are, are coordinating these efforts here uh to see what's going to happen and uh, as we said uh, uh, the information you're giving us right now might be outdated by this time tomorrow but we'll certainly stay in touch and see what's happening stay healthy Absolutely. and and again sure. please express our gratitude to everybody on staff melissa thanks so much will do thank you Melissa Farrell, the president at uh, St. Joseph's Hospital. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML.
I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.